Welcome to another in our series of podcasts from the Mary Rose Museum. We're going to be sitting in the boardroom at the museum itself, socially distanced, windows open, the museum closed. A closure caused by a worldwide pandemic. COVID-19 has had devastating effects on all our lives. The UK has succumbed to a large death toll, and that has led to comparisons being made with past pandemics. A hundred years ago, just after the First World War, this country, indeed much of the world, was hit by what has been known since then as the Spanish flu. This too was a worldwide pandemic. It too killed millions, not least of all because medicines and practices of the day were not as advanced as they are now. And of course, there has been much conversation too about the older historical epidemics, the Black Death, the Great Plague, which appeared in the 14th and 17th centuries in their most deadly and widespread outbreaks. So what of the time of the Mary Rose, Tudor times? Well, there was a Tudor pandemic too, or more accurately, an epidemic, curiously seeming to only really attack England, and in fact, some say only the English. The Tudors in fact called it the English sweat or the sweating sickness, which also gives us a clue as to some of the symptoms. Henry VIII is said to have spent almost every night of 1528 sleeping in a different bed to avoid the likelihood of catching it, though he may have had other reasons too for a little bit of bed hopping. In any case, according to contemporary accounts, some of those who contracted this disease were dead in just a matter of hours. Sounds nasty. To find out more about this deadly disease, Tudor medicines and treatments, as well as how that relates to the Mary Rose and some of the fantastic objects in the collection, I'm going to be talking to the Mary Rose's Head of Research and Curator, Alex Hildred, and Diane Budden, whose doctorate at the University of Winchester researches coping strategies and caring for the sick in the 16th century, specifically among seafaring and south coast communities. Hi, Alex and Diane. Hi. Hi, Adrian. Hi, good to see you. Um, so the sweating sickness, it does sound quite a nasty little beast, but let's begin by setting some context, I think. Um, let's talk a little bit first about Tudor medicine in general. What did they know? How did they treat disease? Well, the first thing to say, Adrian, is that illness and disease was a constant threat at that time. They also thought of the body in a different way, whereas we think of the body as a set of systems, digestive system, um, cardiovascular system, um, enclosed by the skin, they thought of the body as a mass of fluids with organs, some organs they were aware of, the heart, the liver, and the brain, um, inside it. And these um, humours, fluids as they called them, um, had to be kept in balance in order to maintain health. And how did, how did they sort of try and keep that balance then? What, what were their methods for maintaining the balance of the four humours? Well, each of those um, humours, uh, be it uh, yellow bile, black bile, um, blood or phlegm, had a different quality. Uh, that means that sort of phlegm was wet and cold. So if you presented with a cold, uh, you needed some treatment to balance that out, perhaps something that was hot. So pepper would be given to help with coughs and colds. 
Um, so it was a case of balancing the humours. And they also did that uh, by thinking of six factors, which they classed as non-naturals. So what you ate, um, the air that you breathed, the sleeping and exercise that you carried out, the passions, the emotions, and everything had to be kept in balance and uh, kept in moderation. So you had to, um, say for exercise, avoid exhaustion. So what type of people were treating these diseases? What I've heard of physicians and barber surgeons. What, what, take us through who these people were. Well, certainly you had physicians who at this time were trained at Oxford and Cambridge, but they were quite expensive. Um, so for the normal people, you had barbers who practiced surgery and they would be either... Uh, working with the company of barbers or the fellowship of surgeons and you had grocers selling spices and they became apothecaries and um, you also had barbers practicing on board ships as well. So um, that's what we know about the Mary Rose, there's always been the, the barber surgeon or possibly even two on the Mary Rose Alex, is that right? Yes and in fact for the Mary Rose we've got at the beginning of her life, 1513, we actually have her listed with, with a named surgeon, Mr. Robert Simpson, and his servant, who we think is an apprentice, Henry Young. And we know that throughout the period of the life of the Mary Rose, so the active life, 1513 to 1545, that the ship did have surgeons, but we don't necessarily know the name. So we've got accounts of, of money being paid for surgeons, but we don't have their names. So that's a real, a real challenge. And interestingly, at both ends of the life of the Mary Rose, we have accounts of what would appear to be an epidemic or a plague during the, the, the campaign in France in 1513. And then at the end, just after the Mary Rose sinks, um, we have John Lyle, who's the admiral of the fleet at the time, writing, saying that there is a huge disease amongst all of the crew of the various ships. And if, if we don't you know, get on top of it, we're actually going to have to have more people coming in. So it's very much... Sure. You know, so close to yeah. the, the Mary Rose story. It's, it's so as Diane said, though, there's uh, obviously disease is a constant in Tudor times. You yes, know, it's not, it's yes. not like we're just experiencing now this one big pandemic that's killing millions around the world. It, they were living with horrible diseases all the time. Yes, they were. And of course, they didn't classify them as we do today. So they called them the sweat, the pox, they had pestilence and plague. And pestilence and plague is referred to uh, quite a lot. But for instance, the records we have identify 36 surgeons sailing with the army by sea at that time. Um, the, and sorry, the army by sea is what Henry called his navy, wasn't yes, it? Was the, was the, yes, his army, general, by sea. his army yes, by his sea. army so by sea. So what we would call the Royal Navy now, effectively. Yes. Yeah. But yes, it was indeed. taking troops to do a land battle as well, although there were some skirmishes off the, off the French coast, and in fact Mary Rose is, is important in that. Um, but the, basically they were transporting troops, and you can see that with the inventory of... of yeah. armaments that are given with them. There are lots of things that are only used in land battles. So, sure. yeah. And later throughout the period it, it develops more into um, sea battles. Sea, sea battles yeah. so. As we know. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And there was a sea battle in 1513 mm. just off the coast of Brittany where the Cordillère and the Regent yeah. uh, got tangled together and there was a huge explosion and fire and there was a lot of loss of life. Um, the Mary James, a ship next door, uh, well, close by, I should say, 
um, suffered a lot of damage and a lot of the men were injured. Indeed, Henry VIII pays the captain of the Mary uh, James £30 um, because the sailors aren't able to sail anymore. So he pays £30 for them to travel home and he gives them £20 as a reward for uh, to help with their um, injuries. That sounds like um, a huge sum of money. It is. Yeah. It uh, is. National Archives was the place to find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't, well, this isn't about money, this is about yes. disease, so we won't go into that. But it's interesting that they should you know, feel that they need some form of recompense for the injuries that they Yes, incurred, and it's yeah. just after that that Thomas Howard becomes Lord Admiral and he then assigns these surgeons to the ships and the Mary Rose surgeons and the Peter Pomegranate surgeons uh, work for the longest duration, that of six and a half months, on the ships during that period. We're not quite sure where they came from, although some of the surgeons, uh, such as John Knock, had been in um, the company of barbers in London. He w- had been a master there. So he's obviously a barber practicing surgery rather than a specific surgeon. And, and the barbers practicing surgery um, did um, offer treatments using um, uh, various simples and concoctions of um, herbs and spices as recommended um, by Italian surgeons at the time, such as John Vigo. And in fact, we found bits of those. We found pepper in people's personal pockets. So whether they were carrying their own um, ability to cure themselves of whatever they might so get. So is, is that where the peppercorns and the showcase are from? That's they're, right. They're that's right. So we possessions have... for the purpose of treating disease. Basically. Well, we don't. We don't, we don't know. But you know, can say they might be. You know, if if you were wealthy enough to have pepper in your pocket, you also would would know about mm. these treatments because. You know, any any one of the, the people that you would go to would use these treatments for it. So, and then looking at the environmental samples that are found, so that's not necessarily pepper, but it could be different um, bits of pollen that you get when you sieve an environmental sample. Within some of those, we've had many of the other spices that mm. that are used. So it's almost as though if you had a really good curry, that you know it would it would um, solve your all your problems. So, and and we were finding those within the assemblage of the Mary Rose, as well as things like. Um, this idea that, that air was noxious, I mean, the air transmitted. Now, we're wearing masks, um, and you can see in some of the paintings you've got ladies that, that bring up there that, that are wearing um, handkerchiefs, just like our bandanas, if you like, of the time, and also carrying things like pomanders because of the smell. If you've got noxious air, mm. you've got a smell. And again, we've got two pomanders which do that. So it was obviously... understood that that there were problems so they believed the body was a a mass of fluids but the skin was really porous Mm. so it meant you were very susceptible to changes in the air and they believed disease was passed by um, through the air so of course as Alex said um, smells uh, were very important to them and getting rid of smells John Vigo recommends you know clearing the air and um, wafting around mint and lavender fascinating isn't it um, and so let, let's drift slightly more specifically then towards the sweating sickness there was a wonderful uh, quote uh, I think from the Venetian ambassador um, about how quickly it killed, which I thought was uh, quite fascinating. He, he says, uh, where have we got it? Here it is. This disease makes very quick progress, proving fatal in 24 hours at the furthest, 
and many are carried off in four or five hours, um, which obviously is pretty quick from contracting the disease to passing away. What, what do we know about the sweating sickness? Well, the sweating sickness attacked in five different waves, they believe. The difficulty is that we think of diseases as specific um, set of symptoms and signs and of course we understand the uh, microbial background or be it bacteria or viral um, but of course in the 16th century they didn't um, understand that and so they gave different terms to what we would consider the same disease so they used the term pestilence plague great mortality, the sweat, as you mentioned. Now, they believe that there was these five outbreaks, um, but it's very difficult to look back at them um, over the time period. And um, some of other instances may have been the sweat, or it may have been another disease. It's very difficult to tell. John Dudley, who is the Lord Admiral in 1545, talks about um, illness in the ships. And he said, there is a, so this is August um, 1545, just after the Mary Rose has sunk. There is a great disease fallen amongst the soldiers and mariners in almost every ship and there's swelling in their heads and faces in their legs and diverse of them um, have the bloody flux um, and then he goes on later to say the great heat and the corruption of their vittel by disorder in the provision and straight and warmth uh, lying in the ships so possibly that's more of a dysentery uh, type disease mm. um, but you know, it's, it is quite difficult to... Um, yes, presumably their record-keeping isn't like ours today. So, as you say, everything could meld into one almost, perhaps. Yes, yes, definitely. But and in, interesting to, to think how, if you were a Tudor person, you might describe the, our current pandemic. You know, what, what would you describe it in? Because people have different... You know, some people lose their sense of smell, some people get mm. dizziness before, some people have long COVID. You know, it, you could have a similar way of describing it. You know, would you call it dysentery? Some people had poor stomachs, you know, or just yeah, a fever. Absolutely. Difficult to know, isn't it? Difficult mm, to know. Very, yeah. to know. very much. Okay. And, and presumably we can't really uh, know about the total death toll of the sweating sickness because all the numbers would be again lumped into other plagues yes, uh, and yes, ages of the time. And it's very difficult to know what um, the population of, say, Portsmouth was at a particular time because we don't have the records. So we don't have a baseline to then say that um, there was uh, so many deaths and it was this mortality rate. Having said that, in 1545, it's not only the ships um, of the English army by sea that are suffering from plague and pestilence, but also the cities of um, Calais and Boulogne, which the Major English, stations yes, the which the English um, hold at that time, mm. they are suffering from pestilence as well. And um, there is one uh, point uh, in the end of August where 
the Council of Boulogne reports back to Henry VIII and they say, well, the plague has well ceased and now the, uh, the number of people dying per day is only three and they have done for the last uh, five or six days. But obviously they um, were used to much greater death rates. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, as we have been over the last year or so. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Daily, yeah. daily. Which again course. brings us back actually, doesn't it, to the fact that they are used to living with these horrible diseases on a daily basis. But also exactly. the transportation part of it, because Boulogne and Calais, you, you mm. had regular transports to England, ship transports to England. So, you know, in the same way as people who go mm. over aircrafts yeah, sure. have brought our, you know, yeah. COVID-19 then, to us. And as Alex says, I mean, if you look at the beginning of July, there's a report from the Council of Boulogne that says they've discharged... 211 sick uh, men out of the garrison to England because they can't fight because they've got the plague. So those men will leave France and they will come back to England. Yeah, bringing, and in, bringing it with bringing them. It yeah. with Thank them. you very much. <laughs> and in fact, during the excavation of the Mary Rose, one of the, because we, we knew that traditionally a surgeon might treat very ill people within in the hold, you take them down, even though his cabin was on the main deck, the main gun deck between two guns. Um, and we found so many bodies within the hold of the Mary Rose when we excavated it, so many skeletons, that one of the ideas was that many of them were ill and were being treated by the, you know, were put down there for isolation and for treatment. Now, we can't say whether that's true because the evidence on the skeletons, those, you know, doesn't, doesn't exist, but, you know, it was a thought at the time. Yeah. And as, as Alex said, and we mentioned earlier, um, there was a, the reference to all of the, the ships of the English uh, army by sea having sick on them at that time. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, now, we've got a table full of objects here, Alex, so uh, there are obviously some things that were found that, in the Mary Rose that are relevant to barber surgeons and treatment of disease. Would you like to uh, talk us through a, a, a small selection of them? Because they're fascinating to look at, some of them. I can see this saw in front of me, which yes. is rather scary. That is an amputation saw. So obviously the, the surgeon was, you know, one of the main things was amputation. I don't know whether, Diane, you can elaborate on that and, and how you would use it. No yes. anaesthetic, was there? No, unfortunately not. Um, although sometimes they did use a substance called dwale, but we what don't... What about henbane? What did that what Yeah, that, that was part for? of, yeah. of dwale, yes. So... Um, so they'd look for herbs and spices that were act as a soporifics, that is, they'd induce drowsiness. Um, but we, we don't know whether they used that on the Mary Rose. But yes, um, there were handles for potentially the, an amputation saw, an incision knife, so that if there was injuries on large limbs, they could uh, amputate those limbs. Um, and they would use a tourniquet. Now this is of course just before Pare recommends using ligatures and uh, to tie off blood vessels um, and so bleeding from an amputation um, mm. hemorrhage w would be quite a considerable threat. Yeah, splattering everywhere. But also, I mean one of the most intriguing things was what we think would have been a handle for a trepan. So, you know, I don't think we're suggesting brain surgery on board, but, you know, perhaps in order to, to get out things like, you know, arrowheads or whatever, you might want to, to drill a little bit of the way. And there are two syringes on, on our table there. Um, we think those are for 
irrigation of wounds and possibly treatment of venereal disease, would that be? Yes, yes. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the sailors, soldiers and mariners did have venereal disease at the time. So they, as Alex says, they used um, wine and vinegar to uh, irrigate wounds um, as, as well and remove um, uh, uh, fluids such as pus um, if they mm. accumulated in wounds. One of the small bowls there is pewter, and it's about the size of a cereal bowl, but with some interesting handles on it that are very flat handles. And we think that's possibly a bowl for bleeding. For bloodletting. Yes, for bloodletting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. If you're going to um, balance the humours and the uh, surgeon um, believes that you have too much blood, then you have to release and uh, get rid of some of the blood so you'd um, cut a vein and allow it to flow out and it was uh, phlebotomy was a really common procedure bloodletting at that time but that pewter um, bleeding bowl also has the initials on the little handles oh, yes, at I the end. W-E, yeah. 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 So when we go back to the surgeons who were assigned to the army by sea in 1513, there were two on the Mary Rose and there were two on the Peter Pomegranate. Now, the two on the Peter Pomegranate um, were John Barker and William Elves. If, if he was really young when he was um, on the Peter Pomegranate, um, it's 30 years when the Mary Rose sinks, could he have been the surgeon that was on the Mary Rose? We've looked looked in other places and not come across his name yet, so that's something which further investigations required, but it's interesting um, to think. It could be though, isn't it? It could be, yes. It could be, because there's so few names, aren't there, Alex, of people on board the Mary Rose? Yeah, so few names, and and obviously finding the surgeon, and it's it's unbelievable that you can't find a name, because so many uh, vessels have got lists with which name the people, and we know, you know, how much they were paid, and we know from from the pay list how important the surgeon was within within the crew, so you've got in rates of pay, the captain, the master, so that's the sailing master in charge of, of the sailing of the ship, the pilot, who is important for uh, his knowledge of, of getting into ports and various other things, as one would have a pilot now. You usually pay for a local pilot when you come into a, um, a port. And the surgeon was next, and that was above the cook, the boatswain, the quartermaster, or any of the gunners. So, um, you know, he was yeah. pretty and highly port, paid, and, port, and it's, you know... Yeah. And it's from those records of the accounts um, that have survived that we have the names of the, the surgeons um, that were working in the 1513 yeah. um, battles. But um, yet we don't have any information for uh, 1544 and 1545. Yeah. But we still are finding things. Mm. I mean, the, the, these digitization projects you know, do throw up the most amazing things from tiny libraries where you don't expect to find anything and then you suddenly get a misfiled list and yeah. and further yeah. information so it's you know, perhaps that's something yeah. that will, will come out of these these um everything being digitized or trying to be digitized at the moment yeah so have yeah. we got any examples of uh, surgical instruments from the mary rose that you mentioned the, the bowl and the saw and the uh, syringe but are there any what we might call scalpels or anything like that? Well there was a small leather pouch which we believe um, would have held fleams. Well fleams are like blades or uh, lancets 
um, that could have been used for bloodletting. Um, you've got needles for stitching things, so you've yes. got stitching and bandaging. We've got lint bandages, which were impregnated with uh, certain things to be able to put on. We've got all of these containers, which these turned wooden, there are 11 turned wooden containers within the um, barber surgeon's chest. And then the, the other things that we've got, we've got relate to the barber, now whether he's the same person or whether it was his assistant or whatever, mm. but we've got um, basically cutthroat razors and we've got the leather strap that they would have been sharpened on and we've got a large bowl, um, about the size of a big salad bowl, but it's made of, of copper alloy, which has a little cut out of it, like a semicircular area relieved out of the rim so that you could lean on it and put your chin over it and have a have a shave on board. Yeah. So we do have evidence of the practice of both and bone ear scoops which we think were to, to take mm. possibly the idea would be to put the, the gunners might put wax in their ears to because of the noise of the gun a little bit of wax maybe to clear it out beeswax and we found evidence of beeswax. Um, and going back to balancing the humours, of course, diet was important mm. and food and drink were important. And we have a feeding bottle, which I know Alex, oh, my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, is Alex's favourite um, object. But there's a really interesting story as well about um, finding that feeding bottle because it's the earliest one. It's the earliest one. I think there's a pewter one, which is slightly later from a collection in London. But when it first came up, it wasn't obvious because it was obviously covered in silt. It wasn't obvious that the screw lid came off. And either the, the very end of it, you couldn't see the hole in it. And it went through entire conservation without being able to take the lid off and look at it and realise it was a feeding bottle. And it was only afterwards when it was being looked at by a specialist, when the entire uh, lot of, of objects that related to medicine were being looked at, that the diagnosis was made that it was actually a bottle for feeding people with very bad facial injuries that couldn't take things with a spoon. We also found the maple wood spoon within the chest, which would have been used to feed patients that, that um, couldn't take solid food. So mm. it really is quite a good kit. You've got things for grinding, mortar and pestle. You've got a large um, ham mallet, which presumably would have helped with amputation mm. with, a, with chisel to, in order to, to chisel through the bones. bones and things. Yeah, yeah to chisel. And, and we know that there were fractures, so we've got about 30 fractures within the Mary Rose. A couple of them seem to be during the sinking. Where in the human remains. Within the human remains, wow. yeah. yeah. So. so We've got um, remains of 179 of the 500 crew, and 92 of those can be partially reconstructed, and it's those that, we, that you look at to try and get information about the bodies, and we can, or about their lives, and we can pick up things like the evidence on their bodies of vitamin C deficiency in the past, and also vitamin D deficiency, but it, you know, it's harder to, to see what was happening at the time. So our people in the hold, for example, we can't tell whether they were suffering on their bodies, or what's left of their bodies from a plague of some sort. I think one of the nicest things and the most personal things is that this lovely silk velvet cap that was one uh, an object that came out of the chest quite early and you unfold it and realise this, this was worn by the surgeon. 
you know, this is a surgeon's so this cap. So this is the barber surgeon's cap. Well, this is and the, there, yeah. there it is. There yeah. it is. So and there the, was a second one as well, wasn't there? The linen, second one, yes. a linen one. So whether that was a liner for it, but this has got a silk lining. So it looks beautiful as well. It is. It's yeah. highly yeah. ornate, and it's yeah. exactly the same as the one that's shown in, in, in the Holbein painting of yes. the, the So when uh, Henry VIII was very involved with um, his uh, surgeons and physicians in bringing together the company of barbers and the fellowship of surgeons, which were the two organisations at the time, and he brought them together in 1540 into one organisation, the company of the barber surgeons and it's from that time we start to see uh, people are referring to them as barber surgeons um, all, although the, as I said earlier the terms are used um, throughout the period uh, yeah but it's a wonderful painting um, uh, intriguingly it's got names on it as well yes. it's, got, it's got the yeah. names of the people so it's Henry VIII and on either side of him are his barber surgeons many of have wearing hats like this yeah. and you've got a name above each of them and we, at first when we saw this we were looking at it thinking yeah we're going to find a WE and of course we just we didn't, didn't find again. a WE no. <laughs> our elusive surgeon is something for historians or archaeologists of the future to find yeah, yeah definitely that's, that's well we, yeah. we drifted slightly from the sweating sickness but we I think we kind of knew we always would because as you've said Diane there was not so much of a definition between all the diseases, but it's, it's fascinating stuff and, and having a look at all of these objects, it's amazing. Is there anything else that either of you want to add that brings us into the realms of COVID-19? Are there any comparisons between the sweating sickness and COVID? Do we know anything about that? Or Well, I think the fact that it was at the time we've got references to people avoiding other people and mm. shunning the town yes. and if somebody has suffered and died things like burning all their clothes or burning yeah. the straw of their bed and things like that so you do know that they were taking similar precautions and distancing sure. themselves I mean I'm not saying it's as far as a national lockdown or anything but you know there was this, yeah. this yeah. so you have um, Woolsey introduces in uh, 1518 um, some guidelines for London to keep your distance, you know, stay within your house. And um, it's been recently uh, suggested that Woolsey got that idea from um, guidelines that they'd issued at Windsor. Um, so they were trying to get people to social isolate. In, in their case, they had a large pole as well that they used to carry around with them um, to keep their distance. Interesting comparisons. Uh, the mm. uh, correlation is interesting as well. Earlier you mentioned the ladies wearing yeah. masks, effectively, face coverings. So it's sort of full circle, really, aren't we? Yes. Alex yeah. Dyer, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating stuff. It's brilliant. And seeing all the objects too. Hopefully the museum will open soon, I think. Scheduled date is for May sometime, isn't it? Um, so uh, everyone will be able to come down and have a look. But thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Adrian. Thank you very much. I hope you have enjoyed our wander through Tudor diseases and their treatments. The objects we referred to are just a small selection of those relating to the barber surgeon on board the Mary Rose and form part of the only collection of its type in the UK from that period. To look after those and all the other objects in the museum, and of course the ship itself, the museum still needs your support. So do please feel free to make a donation, which you can do on the website. You can also buy advance tickets to visit for when we reopen, although at this moment in time we still don't have an exact date for reopening. 
Following government guidance, we hope the museum will be able to reopen in mid-May. In the meantime, of course, you could have a listen to the other podcasts we've produced. For now, please stay safe and well, and we look forward to welcoming you into the museum when the doors reopen.